loving us, full of mercy, full of grace, despite our wrongdoings and our trials and our tribulations and ultimately the sin that we commit against you, Lord God. You love us so much and we're just so grateful for you, Father God. And we just want to um, follow your spirit today, Lord God, as we prepare to hear the message from the Lord God. Would you bless her and keep her as she prepares to await the you, Lord God, in this world. I'd like to introduce Ray Asteropolis. Season. 
whether you give something up or you add something, I pray that God will draw you closer to him and prepare you for a fresh experience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you take these dead words, this noise that comes out of my throat, and make it alive. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and dwell within us and around us. We want to hear what we need to hear for our lives today. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lent, today's also Valentine's Day. The day of love. Yes, a lot of hoopla is about romantic love. But really, I believe it's about love and relationships. Love between friends, love between parents and their children, love between siblings, and romantic love, of course. Relationships are made up of people who are deeply connected in some way. They consist of a grouping of more than one person. So before we talk about the interactions of the relationship, we need to talk about the individuals that make up that group. You and me. We are part of a relationship. Who are we and what do we bring to the table of community? Some of us bring brownies, store-bought, homemade. Some of us bring lasagna, maybe, like school The good news, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist says, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have been created in the image of God. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So since we've been created in God's image, I want to explore for a few minutes what our Father is like, and let's look at the DNA that we've been given. Who are we? Why are we like us? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is he's creative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God is nothing else, he's a creator. He likes order. He separates the light from the darkness, the waters from the dry land. He made two great lights, the great to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He likes government. He likes order. He made man to rule over the fish in the sea and the cattle and over the creeping things. Order. He likes blessings. After creating, he declares, it's good. Well, okay, there you have it. You create a good meal, and somebody says, is it good? It's, it's delicious. Even if you made it, it's good. From God. He creates man, and he blesses him. He creates Eve for man to enjoy. He created Eve for the companionship and blessing. He delegates responsibility. Interesting. In Genesis 1, he delegates the responsibility of being faithful and multiplying and filling the earth, subduing it and ruling over it to Adam. He delegates to us. At the end of scripture, Jesus gives man the responsibility of making disciples of all nations, to bring the good news to all, 
This is the responsibility of the church. He delegates. It's interesting that God is not controlling. He did not create robots, but creatures with free will. But he does command us to rule over things, and we'll talk about that later, to maintain order. He demands obedience. Obedience to God somehow equates faith. Do you trust him? You obey. So obedience and trust are something completely connected together. He insists on justice, even though it might be extremely costly to himself. He never compromises on justice. There are no plea bargaining in God's courts. He is love, and grace pours out of him, again, to the cost of him. And then, it's interesting, he loves, absolutely loves, loves to rest. If you look at scripture and you look at how many verses are about resting, it's amazing. God doesn't need rest, but such a big deal is made of ceasing from activity. He creates six days, on the seventh we rest. But Sabbath, the day of rest. Not only was man directed to rest, but also his ox, his donkey, his slaves, and his guests were all told to rest. That must be really important to him. He rests. Every seven years, it was called the Sabbath year. Each field was to lie fallow and rest. Agriculture was supposed to rest. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So many passages about rest. And finally, today's topic, he loves and yearns for relationship. So much so that he is in relationship with himself. I mean, that's odd, I know. <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in a relationship can't quite uncomprehend it, but it's clear in scripture. But God wants more, not just relation with himself. He creates humans and calls them children, beloved, friend. He loves fellowship. And in Genesis 3, to daily in the cool of the evening walk with us, to commune with us. He enjoys time spent with us. This is the kind of God we have. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, and then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me, you will all your heart. Fellowship. So we've been created with these same qualities. That's amazing news. Is it not amazing news? Out of all the creatures in God's creation, we create. Do you know that Satan cannot create? Do you know that? He takes what God has created and he warps it, he twists it, but he can't do anything on his own. But we humans, we create. We invent things to make our lives better. But not only that, we also create art just for art, for pure enjoyment and to provoke some sort of introspection. Order. We do well in the we are told babies thrive with schedules and boundaries. Order makes us feel safe. It allows us to grow. Control. Here it is. God has commanded us to rule the earth, to take control. And you know, to be honest, we like control. Do we not? I don't think I need to persuade you that we enjoy control. Child rearing is all about who is in control. I've recently become a substitute teacher. Most of the job entails controlling fidgety youth from learning to, so they can so they can learn. Sports is all about control. So is music.
dance, gardening, architecture, space exploration is about overcoming and controlling gravity. Cooking is about controlling ingredients. The Stone Age men finally learned how to control fire, and it transformed our lives. We expect justice, just like our father. How many times do we protest something is just not fair? And we need rest, do we not? Sleep is rejuvenation. Cessation of our normal activities is good for our soul. We love to play and relax and be entertained. But most of all, most of all, we have been created for relationship. Each one of us has been born with a vacuum that yearns for God. To look upon God's goodness, his power and protection, to be loved and forgiven, to be affirmed, and more than anything else, to be truly known. To be honest with you, one of the things, one of my favorite things about God is that he really knows me. I can't fool God. You can't fool God. You can't pretend. He, he, he sees you, and he loves you. Is that amazing? You can't really say that about anybody else you know, that they really know you. How many times have you told a loved one the frustration? After all these years and you still don't get me? Our need for relationship does not stop with God. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. We yearn to be loved by those we love. It's how we've been created. Our greatest joys are shared with others. A gorgeous sunset is even more spectacular when shared with someone you love. We celebrate in community because that's how we are made. When I have a piece of good news, I immediately need to share with my family or a friend. Gossip, I believe, is the negative aspect of this need to share. <laughs> I need to share so badly that I share your news as well as mine. <laughs> so on Valentine's Day, we celebrate our relationships by sending Valentine's cards to those we love. God's no different. He sends love poems all the time. The early morning dawn with its cool breezes and chirping birds. The beautiful flower that surprises us on our path. The majesty of the mountains. The sweet smell of the blooming lemon tree. The brilliant scented sun. The rustling of leaves are my favorite. The frolicking dolphins that you catch sometimes in Malibu. The vastness of our universe. The mysteries of unknown galaxies. The depths of the ocean. All created for what? For our pleasure. And all watermarked by God. I love you. That's our balance. Love. How do God have standards for love? Our Creator, like of all things, has set the standard for love. And I'd like to look at how God expects us to love. And will you join me in reading this, please? First Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Let's do it slowly so we can kind of sink in. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God's standard. Let's take an assessment of how well we love. Are we truly patient with those we love? <laughs> Are we kinder to strangers than our family members? Are we discontent 
when we see a sibling's success in an area where we fail miserably? How hard is it not to boast when we do something well, especially when someone in our family is just bragging on and on and on? How painful is it to be truly vulnerable to a loved one whose side are both alive? How easy is it to forgive a parent when they have stepped all over our self-esteem? Is it near possible to honor someone who behaves in ways that you would never dream of behaving? And if I don't take care of number one, or who will, of course I seek to promote myself. How hard is it not to get angry with someone who knows your buttons and keeps pushing them anyway? They should know better. Seriously? Don't keep records of wrongs. It's not like we have half the body. We not only remember, but suddenly we are all very good accountants. What does that mean, always trust? Isn't that just naive? Defend, even when he never comes to my defense? Always hope in the face of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? Never give up on relationships, but always persevere, even when I deserve better? Today, a day where we celebrate relationships and think about love in all its glory and idealism, we find ourselves and others laughing. We are not loved the way we want to be loved, the way we need to be loved. And we do not love the way we should love. So what's gone wrong? If we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and we were made for a relationship, why are we so bad at keeping God's standard of loving? Why are our lives full of conflicts? Why do love affairs fall apart? Why are marriage commitments so difficult to sustain? Why are mother-daughter relationships and father and son relationships so complicated? Why do so many siblings struggle with envy, competition, and insecurities? Why are friendships so difficult to navigate? Why so much drama in our relationships? So the bad news is we have a problem. Genesis 4, 7 says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to have you, you must rule it. What does that mean? Sin is crouching at our door, and we need to rule over it. Have you ever thought, there's someone eavesdropping all the time on everything that's happening? Watch it. Besides God. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Really? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking, waiting for fellowship. That's what he does. In the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But 
But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent has saved me. And there you have it. Our problems begin. <laughs> volumes and volumes have been written on why relationships go wrong and ways to fix them. But this morning, I want to look at our relationship with the story of Adam and Eve. And perhaps we can get some insights about ourselves and how we love. Their relationship started with great promise and then fell apart. As we already heard, the first chapter of Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were both created in God's image. Male and female in the glorious image of God Almighty. Pay attention now. God is male and female. Feminine attributes. The second chapter of Genesis gives us a more detailed explanation of the creation story. Genesis 2 to 3. It begins by telling us something very interesting. I didn't really catch that before I, I, I studied for this, uh, for this sermon. That God created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, okay? separated the waters. And then there was no vegetation, and there were no animals. I'm not sure about the sea animals, but there were no animals. Because, it says in scripture, there was no one to cultivate the garden. So God then created man. He formed man out of dirt, and he blew into the nostrils the breath of life, and man was created. Can you imagine how important this first man was? God had spoken into existence the day, the night, the waters, the dry land, sun, stars, moon, but with man, yes, he has becomes intimate. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how he did it, how the dust was formed, but God breathed into Adam's nostrils and the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. He did not create a robotic man. He made man in his image. 
God respects that in an image created with a free will to choose to do this or to choose to do that. He created Adam for companionship and he desired Adam to choose to be with the creator. God is saying, trust me Adam, this tree is not good for you. Don't eat of it. It will be your destruction. Please trust me. Do you notice how Satan uses control and persuades us to control each other? God never meant us to be controlled of each other, to manipulate each other. So Adam is left in the garden, but something was wrong, and God knew it. Something was not right. He felt alone. It was just Adam and the vegetation of the garden. He says, God says, I will make them a helper suitable to him. I didn't think he was coming along here. So out of the garden, out of the ground, God formed every beast in the field, every bird in the sky, and they were brought to Adam for him to name. And Adam named them all, but he was alone. So he wasn't just a cultivator of the land, he also named the animals. And he saw the animals. The animals were two by two. But Adam, no. Why would God wait for so long to create Eve? Did he really think that Adam would have found a companion amongst the animals? When you read scripture, ask yourself questions, and you will learn so much. God wanted Adam to feel alone, to feel that something was missing. So God put Adam to sleep, and while he was sleeping, God removed one of Adam's ribs and created a woman out of it, the only creation that was like that was Eve. The animals were created out of the earth, like Adam. But Eve was created from a rib of Adam's. And Adam was excited. He was ecstatic. This is what he wanted and he couldn't find. She is part of me, part of my bones and my flesh. I'll call her woman because she was taken out of man. And Adam is so happy he begins to tap dance and breaks into a song. <laughs> and the man and his wife were naked. They were not ashamed. They were not self-conscious about their bodies. There was no reason to mistrust the other. Trust had not been broken and their union was pure. Imagine that. These two were free from shame. Can you imagine a relationship that has no baggage? The two have entered this relationship without any baggage. Think of the baggage we bring to the table when we enter relationship. No hurts that they project on the other. You and I have never experienced such a thing. Every relationship we have is tainted by the past. From the get-go, Adam and Eve have a head start. What do these do in paradise, these two? Well, Adam had a lot to explain to Eve. I'm sure he introduced animals to her, told her name, their names. He held her hand and showed her the garden and where to find the sweetest berries, perhaps. And I think it's a safe assumption to make that he told her about the tree of good and evil. Or what exactly did he tell her? Was it a casual, hey, see that tree over there? Which one, Adam? Uh, you know, the real pretty one? Yeah, don't go near it or you'll die. <laughs> was it like that? Or did he explain in detail? Did he tell her the tree's name? It's called the tree of good and evil. No, not that one, but this one, the tree of good and evil. And did he tell her how God had given them everything the garden except this one? Because he didn't know about what he did. But we do know 
that Eve got her information second now. Adam had been the first. Adam had been given the responsibility to name the animals and to cultivate the garden. Adam had spent more time with the Creator. He had enjoyed quiet walks with the Lord before she even existed. She was created because Adam was alone. Do you notice that? How there's nothing wrong with any of these things. There's nothing wrong with being older and more experienced. There's nothing wrong with being younger and less knowledgeable. But pay attention to that, seriously. What is the reason that God did not create Adam and Eve at the same time, simultaneously? Wouldn't it have been more prudent that way? Wouldn't the problems have been avoided? And a word to the wise, to all of us. When you catch yourself thinking that you could do something better than your creator, you could have designed it better, organized it better, something wrong. And trouble arrives in the form of a beautiful creature that was more crafted than other, any other creature in the garden. Satan embodies the snake to talk to the woman. Now, I've already mentioned that Satan cannot create things. He uses what he sees and hears to stir up trouble. He knows about the tree of good and evil. He knows Eve was created after Adam and that she has less understanding about who God is. Less experience. What does Satan know about you? He's paid attention to the details of your life, to your likes and dislikes. He knows your hurts and disappointments. Do you know that? He knows your birth order. He knows how your siblings treated you, how your mother nurtured you or not. He has a PhD in psychology, and he knows you better than you know yourself. Temptation eavesdrops all day long, ready for an opportune moment to pounce. Let's look how he stirs up trouble in Genesis 3. Most likely she's alone when he starts his conversation. That's really smart, isn't it? You divide and you conquer, right? Satan says to the woman, so, so, has God said that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, Satan knows that isn't the truth. He's exaggerating the truth. But what's he implying, really? God has created this paradise with all these amazing trees, all these gorgeous things, and he doesn't let you eat any of them? What is wrong with him, Eve? Let's remind ourselves about 1 Corinthians. Love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And pay attention to what Eve's response is to Satan's exaggeration. First of all, she shows, she shows, she shows a certain level of naivete. She doesn't pick up on Satan's intentions. If she had, I would hope that she would want to sound absent. It's naive of us to think that we alone can arm wrestle temptation. When Satan knocks on the door, you send Jesus to him. Okay? Do not be naive. No, she tells Satan, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but from the tree in the middle of the garden, well, God has said you shall not eat of it or even touch it, lest you die. Eve seems to not know the name of the tree of good and evil. She says, the tree that's in the middle. Well, there are other trees. There was a special one, other one, in the middle of the garden as well. Or perhaps Adam forgot to mention it to her. She describes it as a tree, and she's kind of vague. Perhaps not naming it actually makes it less wrong. Hmm? Less wrong. 
She's vague in identifying it, and then she exaggerates the truth. God said, don't eat of it or even touch it, lest you die. Is that how Adam explained it to her? Or is something else going on? My feeling is that she's beginning to indulge herself in self-pity and resentment. You see how it creeps in? Most likely, this is the first negative conversation she has ever heard about the Creator. First time. There is no desire in her to defend God's generosity as she focuses on the negative. Watch how this goes. It's a slippery slope. Don't eat, don't even touch, lest you die. And Satan's response, you shall certainly die. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. No longer will you be naive, rather you will be just like him, knowing good and evil. Temptation tries to separate us from what we know about God. You're feeling deprived, you're hurting. Well, why is God doing this to you? That's always our response, right? Why is God doing this to you? Okay, he wants me to suffer. Do you see what's happening? Eve's relationship with God is deteriorating. She allows Satan to speak evil of God, the one who has given her everything. She doesn't come to God's defense. She does not defend him, rather she wants to have what he has. She is self-seeking, and she begins to delight in the one thing that is prohibited. Satan is speaking out of what she feels must be true. His question actually resonates inside of her. Ah! After all, how good is God if he has kept this thing from her? He wants to keep her in her place. He wants to make her second. A helper. She's just as good as Adam. For the first time, she will have first-hand knowledge. Not knowledge handed down from Adam. Did he recognize that she had been envious, perhaps? Was she envious all along? Or did this just come up? So she takes a closer look at this forbidden fruit. Lust. Mmm. It smelled wonderful. It was beautiful. It looked lush and sweet. It did look like it would make her wise. If she ate it, he's right, say, this, this serpent is right. So she takes a beat. We're not quite sure how she finds Adam, but she does. Look, she says, she hands it to him. What does he do? Everything he has experienced, everything he has been taught goes flying out the window. And there is no mention of Adam hesitating, no mention of him being dismayed or disapproving. She gave him the fruit, and he ate it. What's going on for Adam's mind? Is there anything going on for Adam's mind? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. He had been handed down the directions of what to do and what not to do regardless. It appears that he abdicated his position. He loved his wife more than he loved God. She gave, and he ate. And you would think if you love someone the most out of anything else in your life, more than God. If you loved your wife more than God, you would think that that relationship would be amazing, yeah? Because that person is not second in your life. First, first. They look at each other and they were horrified that they were naked. Why? Why? What does nakedness have to do with anything? They've seen each other naked all this time. There was no such thing as clothing. You see, our relationship with our Heavenly Father is the foundation of all our other relationships. If there's something that goes wrong between you and your father, everything 
we are humble before him, things go well with others. If we make our child, our friend, our spouse, the most important thing in our life, the thing that we want most is ruined. Trust has been thrown out in the window in the garden. They felt vulnerable. From whom? From each other, from God. They made loin coverings of fig leaves. And what had been up to now, the most enjoyable part of the day became impossible. They hid from God's presence as he was walking the garden. Where are you? God asked. I heard you in the garden. I hid from you because I was naked, Adam replied. God asked Adam, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat from the prohibited fruit? Adam and Eve's obedience to God caused havoc in their lives. And the blaming game began. It has seeped into all our relationships. It is the need to not take ownership of our shortcomings. We are not to blame. It's my mother, my father, my grandparents, my boss. But how hard is it to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I messed up? Would it have been different for Adam and Eve if they accept responsibility? The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. I mean, Adam throws a double whammy at God. Blames God for giving him Eve, and blames Eve. Eve turns around, the servant deceived me, and I ate. Do you guys remember the comedian Flip Wilson? Remember Flip Wilson? His main thing was the devil made me do it. That was what he always his signature phrase. The truth is that Satan merely used Eve's weakness against her. Apostle James says, each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, the seeds of lust are already in us. What does Satan use in our relationship? To birth sin? Is it pride? Is it boasting? Is it self-pity? Is it insecurity? Is it unforgiven hurts, unrepentant sins? Is it an inability to take ownership of our decisions? And we suffer. We and those in relationship with us suffer. For Eve, childbirth became painful. Parenting became fraught with heartache. Adam and Eve's relationship became work. Marriage became work. Parenting became fraught with heartache. Adam cultivating the land was no longer fun. Bread was put on the table by the sweat of his brow. And the end? Death. What a visual of a relationship starting with great promise and ending in such dismal failure. As we look at our relationships this morning, would you join me in being a little introspective for a few Remind yourself that you are wonderfully made in God's image, that you have fallen short of God's will. Ask yourself, what seems to keep on happening in my relationships? With my child, my spouse, my mom, my dad, my friends, my siblings. Am I patient? Am I kind? Do I envy? Am I self-seeking? How quickly do I get angry? Do I keep records of wrongs? Do I delight in evil or do I rejoice in the truth? Do I protect my friendships? Do I trust my spouse? Do I still have hope in our love? Do I give up or do I persevere? How different would things be if I behave humbly? was quick to throw grace on those I profess to care about. In conclusion, it's my hope today, as we reflect on our brokenness during the Lent season, our relationships will be renewed. Humility will replace pride. Empathy and understanding will replace anger and patience. And grace will fall like soothing rain on all those we love, bringing us mutual. Thank <laughs> you.